Good morning, College Park. Please turn with me to Romans 11, verses 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight is the time that uh, we as a church gather to pray together. At 6 o'clock is our uh, Fresh Encounter service. We're also going to be having a members meeting tonight. And if you're a member, we would want you to come, expect you to come. We're going to hear uh, some updates on our covenant renewal process and uh, what it is that uh, as elders we're thinking and praying about as we're moving forward, uh, trying to be good shepherds of the congregation. And um, we'll also have, to have some other updates for you as to uh, things happening in the context of the church. If, um, if there's a prayer need in your life that's uh, more personal and intimate, there'll be a five o'clock prayer time in the prayer room. Pastor Don, Barnabas, and myself will uh, be there uh, along with our wives. We'd love to pray for you if there's something going on um, in your life. Today we bid well, bid farewell to um, uh, Romans 11. And uh, so want to dig into this glorious text today and ask the Lord to help us end well in this glorious passage. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father in heaven, we come now and pray that your name would be exalted and you would be lifted up as we think and examine what your word says about who you are, your glory, and your grace. We pray that... Um, you would be our teacher and that your spirit would speak through this text about the supremacy and the sovereignty of your name. We thank you for the way in which you've met with us in these three chapters and we bid them farewell with joy and anticipation in our hearts as to what you have yet to teach us in this book. So come now, please, God, be our teacher again this Lord's day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Aurelius Augustine was a first century bishop in northern Africa. 
Church historians will tell you that next to Jesus and the Apostle Paul, he had an enormous effect on the landscape of Christianity. After all, he was the one whose understanding of grace alone was the message that Luther and Calvin trumpeted in the Reformation and had this idea of grace alone through faith alone, which became the central doctrine of the Reformation. Augustine cherished the sovereignty of God deeply. He famously said this, command what you wish, but give what you command. In other words, God, say whatever you want to say and call me to do whatever you want me to do, but then give me, grant me the power to be able to do it. For Augustine, that statement was more than just a theological, pithy reality. It was his life, it was his salvation. You see, for over 15 years, Augustine was in bondage to sexual sin. And finally, at the age 31, God stormed Augustine's heart with what he called sovereign joy. He said this in describing the invasion of God's spirit. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. For Augustine, The sovereignty of God in salvation was the foundation of everything. It defined his view of God and it became the fuel, the motivation for his personal righteousness. For Augustine, God's grace was essentially this, God giving him sovereign joy in triumph over joy in sin. So for Augustine, what happened is that God sovereignly conquered his joy in the wrong thing and set his heart to love the right thing, namely Christ. In other words, the beauty of grace alone is not just the singularity of that phrase, grace alone. The beauty of grace alone is its power because grace alone means God alone. Or to say it another way, as we have in Romans 9, 10, and 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. Grace alone means God alone. And this traumatic reality, this traumatic God-centeredness is the essence of what we have found in Romans 9 to 11. Today we are wrapping up our short little series on Romans 9 to 11 called The Mystery of Righteousness. We conclude the seven messages that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. We began our journey in March the 8th, and let me summarize for you the argument of Romans 9 to 11. The main question in these chapters is this, How can the promises of God in Romans 8 be trusted and be true if the promises God made to Israel about her being a light to the nations and the nations flooding to her and hearing of the one true God have not in fact come true? 
How can you trust the promises of Romans 8 if the people of God, people of Israel, have rejected their own Messiah? That's the question. The answer, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, is the sovereignty of God. It is an appeal to God's grace, that God has worked through divine election so that a Jewish remnant is saved, such that Gentiles now are, are welcomed into God's people. Romans 9, 6 puts it this way, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the, the promise underneath the promise, or the hope underneath the hope, is that God is sovereign in all things. And the question as to how can God be trusted is answered in that, Paul points to the fact that God and his sovereign purposes is not finished with Israel, that he's going to give her future grace, fulfilling all of his promises to her, and in seeing the way in which God is working through history, through divine election, and through the beauty of his plan for Israel, it gives us assurance that God is going to do what he said he would do, that God's promises can be believed, and then the effect is that God's people, seeing the beauty of who God is, end up worshiping him for all that he is. So Romans 9 to 11 is essentially about God, it's about his sovereign purposes, and his conquering grace. These chapters have helped us to see the beauty of God's mercy and the power with which it storms the citadel of sinful human hearts, it captivates us with the grace of Christ, and it lays hold of us for all of eternity. It is that the basis and the ground of our hope is who God is. When you understand what this means and when you get the reality of God's sovereignty, it, it leaves you in absolute awe and wonder as you realize that you have nothing that has come to you apart from God's grace and who he is. That everything is from him, everything is through him, and at the end of the day, everything is to him. In fact, the essence of sin is the reverse of that. From me, through me, and to me are all things. That's why hell is real. The reverse of that in Romans 9 to 11 is from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That theology leads to doxology. Understanding who God is leads us to love him and to worship him. So I think in Romans 9, 36, we have a memorable summary, not only of Romans 11, but also of Romans 10 and Romans 9, and for that matter, maybe the entire Bible and the entire Christian life, which is this, that when you become a follower of Jesus, you have been captivated that everything is from Christ, everything is through Christ, and everything is to Christ. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower of him. It's the essence of worship. It's the bottom line reason why we are gathered today. It's the distinction between heaven and hell. It is what it means essentially to be a Christian, that you have found that from Christ and through Christ and to Christ is everything. So what I wanna to do today is to look at this passage, verses 25 to 36, and I wanna use this framework of from him, through him, and to him 
and show you how Paul concludes this great chapter in God's word. From him, verses 25 through 27 detail for us God's promises. The promises of God come from him, and in verse 25, he raises the question again in regards to the future of Israel. Has Israel, in effect, been cut off from God's mercy? Has Israel been removed completely from God's grace and permanently? That's the question that's front and center. So verse 25 says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, he's referring here to Gentiles, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Paul's talking to Gentiles about Israel. He's talking to Gentiles because they might be tempted because of um, Israel's rejection of the Messiah, because of being cut off. They might be tempted to look down their spiritual noses at Israel acting as though somehow Gentiles are better. And so he warns them, as we heard last week, and now tells them about Israel's future. What is the plan for Israel? Essentially, the promise is that there is this partial hardening that's happening now, and that that partial hardening will one day come to an end, and that there is a plan, a plan for the people of God, a plan for Israel. Paul says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. The word mystery there does not mean something that can't be known, like a riddle, but rather it means something that in previous times was hidden and now is being revealed such that there's awe and wonder, something that takes your breath away, something that you see and, and, and marvel at. There's three aspects that God is doing, or three aspects of what God is doing The text tells us that there's a partial hardening in verse 25. That's the first part. There's a partial hardening of Israel. Secondly, that there's a a mission to the Gentiles. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's this concept that a hardening has happened over Israel, that, that the effect of that has welcomed in Gentiles into the fold of God. And then he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved some kind of plan for Israel. What is that plan? Well, it all relates to how you understand the concept of all Israel. And let me give you a survey of four different views, and mine would be the last, and I think it's the right one. It's mine, that's why I think it's the right one, so. (laughs) If you know someone who has another view, it doesn't mean that they're not a Christian, it just means they're wrong, but so you just, (laughs) let me tell you what they are anyways, so here they are, and I say that charitably and sarcastically, you know. All Israel first, some take this to mean that the church has replaced Israel, and so all Israel is seen as a spiritualized entity. In this way, the church that includes both Jews and Gentiles, so when he says all Israel, essentially one view would say he means the church, and part of the reason why some folks would take this view, is because there are texts in the Bible that refer to the church of God in Israel-like language. For instance, um, the book of Galatians, chapter three and verse nine, refers to believers as the sons of Abraham, which really, which explains that annoying song that you used to sing in Sunday school, right? (laughs) 
Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. So like Galatians, right? Um, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, you know? <laughs> Enough, right? You, you, at least you know while the song was annoying, it was somewhat theologically accurate, so you can be encouraged with that. Galatians 6.16 also refers to the church as the Israel of God. So there, there is language in the New Testament that indicates some sort of spiritualized sense that the church is the new Israel. However, the problem in Romans 9 to 11, I think, is the fact that there's ethnicity all over these chapters. Jews, Gentiles, ethnicity everywhere. So suddenly now to throw in the spiritualized version of that just doesn't seem to fit to me the flow of the text. The second way to take all Israel is to mean just the remnant of the Jews who believed. Not that there's some sort of sweeping conversion, but rather it's just that remnant, that small group of people, and they are the, the all Israel or the, 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 the true Israel. The, the challenge with that view, I think, is that it doesn't seem very promising. Like, why would Paul now talk about, in this way, all Israel would be saved? It seems like there's something more that he's longing for. So just to have the remnant doesn't seem sufficient enough in terms of its future promise. Another way to take all Israel third is to mean every Jewish person ever born in history, that every Jew ever born will then be saved. The challenge with that is that would almost imply that there's some other means for salvation for those who um, have died and are no longer even um, able to receive Christ because their lifetime has expired. So I think fourth and finally, I think it's best to see all Israel as a promise to ethnic and national Israel. That there's coming a day when there will be a massive evangelism of Jewish people, such that it will, that Israel will be as characterized by belief on that day as she is characterized by unbelief today. It doesn't mean that absolutely every single Israelite is going to be saved. In the same way that when you come up to me and say, Mark, all of us um, don't like this about the church, and I say to you, well, how many is all? Four of us. Okay, good. So I don't understand what the word all means, right? So the word all has somewhat of an elasticity to it. And the idea is that Israel will have this massive conversion such that she will be more characterized by belief than she is disbelief, and certainly more characterized by belief than she is now. I think this will happen in the end times. As my grid to the end times is I think this will happen prior to the second coming of Jesus. I think it will happen during the tribulation and think then it will lead to the millennial kingdom where, in my view, the promises made to Israel come to full fruition both as a nation and in the promised land as promised all throughout the Old Testament in the Abrahamic covenant and even in the new covenant. Now regardless of where you land on all Israel or when it happens, the point that you need to see and no matter where people take all Israel, they all land back at this point, is that there is coming a day when something miraculous happens with the people of God as it relates to the new covenant. That the new covenant now reaches its ultimate fulfillment. And that's why Paul mingles Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 and Jeremiah 31 together in verses 26 and 27. That's why he quotes these Old Testament texts. That the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away my sins. He's, he's hinting about the, the new covenant sort of language in verse 27. The idea is this 
beautiful promise that there's coming a day when Jesus will remove the unbelief from Israel and grant them faith to believe, that God is going to embrace them again as his people. He's going to fulfill the longing of their heart as as described in the new covenant and give them a new heart. He's going to write the law of God on the inside. He's going to fill them with his spirit, and they will never, ever, ever, ever again be estranged from them. Their history of rejecting the Messiah and being disobedient will finally be brought to its ultimate conclusion, and they will always follow after their God forever. That's the hope. Take your Bible, go to Jeremiah 32. This hope that I'm referring to is the hope of the new covenant, the new covenant that has been inaugurated by the person and work of Christ, the new covenant that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what has happened in a spiritual sense to you, and yet, in a real sense, Israel as a people yet waits for. Isaiah, or Jeremiah rather, 32, beginning in verse 37. Here's the new covenant. And I think it's helpful to understand this in context as you read it through the lens of Romans 11, where he says this, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, and my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. In other words, do you know what Israel's hope is? Israel's hope is not that she's going to get better. Israel's hope is that she's not going to be more faithful in the future. Israel's hope is that one day God is going to give her a new heart. It's the same hope that you have as a follower of Jesus. That at the end of the day, their deliverance is the same thing as your deliverance, and it only comes because of God himself. That God conquers people's hearts, and that they, Israel, will be saved because God will do it, and those of you who are Christians are saved because God has done it. If you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to sound really sweet to you. As you think back in your life, circumstances of how you came to Christ, can you see that behind the scenes, all the things that were happening, that God was at work in all of those. He used people, he used circumstances, he used the preaching of the gospel. I, I remember, I can see the scene in the little Sunday school room at a vacation Bible school where for the first time I heard the gospel clearly and I understood it. I, it is an indelibly imprinted memory on my mind and heart. And that was not a coincidence. God was at work in all of that. He can use pain to awaken you to your need. You may be here today in incredible pain. You may be here today because you're searching. What's the answer to life? And you need to know that that pain in your life may be the very means that God uses to move you from death to life, from being an unbeliever to being a believer. 
Just last week I was having a conversation with a nurse who was here on our campus doing some health screening and she was, we were talking about spiritual things and she said that she kind of came to faith in Christ later in her life and I said, well tell me your story. And so she told me her, her, her story and it was because of a, a divorce the breaking of a, of, a, of, a, of a long marriage that God used to awaken her to her need for Christ. And that's what God does. He still does that. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here today, you need to know that the events in your life, they are not by accident. They are divinely arranged. And God is using all the events in your life, both good and bad, to point you to him by showing you that you need something more than you, helping you maybe even today to realize that from you, through you, and to you is a bad deal. It ends up nowhere. Actually, it ends up in judgment. And the message of the gospel starts with the understanding that everything that you need is not found in you, it is found outside of you in the person and work of Christ. From him, that's the starting point. The promises of God flow from him. Secondly, through him. Go back to Romans 11. Here we see God's plan. This text talks not only about the source, but now we see the way in which God works. That all things are from him and all things are through him, meaning that God is at work executing his plan for mercy, and because of that, we can have incredible assurance. Verse 28, Paul summarizes the position of Israel in light of her present unbelief. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regard election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What's, what's going on here? Well, Paul is helping them to understand that even in the midst of disobedience, God's still working out his plan. At the present time, Israel is an enemy of the gospel, and yet God, is a, God still has a plan for her. She is loved by God. That Israel's rejection of her Messiah is not the final chapter. That there is more to come for Israel, but not because of Israel. There is more to come for Israel because of God. The security of God's plan and the assurance that comes with it is highlighted in verse 29. For he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Those three words are really important. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. What does he mean by gifts? I think he's referring back to what we saw in Romans 9 and verse 4, the things that God had given to Israel, like her adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, that these are the things that God had given and those things are irrevocable. We'll talk more about that word in a moment. Not only the gifts, but also the calling. And this word calling in this particular context means the effectual call to salvation. That was a part of God's relationship with Israel, that they were his people. They were holy to the Lord. They were a chosen people. And those were the people upon whom God had set his love. And although there's this partial hardening, it doesn't mean that God has completely written off his people, that Israel's foundation and her history are directly connected to God's affection for them and his love. 
The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. What does that mean? It means this glorious truth. Listen, that the promise of God made to his people and to you in his word, those promises are not ultimately based upon our ability to keep our end of the bargain, nor are those promises based upon our actions entering into those promises, but rather those promises are guaranteed by God himself. That's the point. In the Abrahamic covenant, when the pieces were divided, traditionally in a covenant ceremony, both parties would walk through the blood trail that would have been developed by taking animals and separating them, in effect saying, do unto me as I've done to these animals if I ever break this covenant with you, and you'd walk through the blood trail of that covenant. Well, in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham doesn't walk through the covenant. Genesis 15 says that only God goes through that covenant, meaning that the Abrahamic covenant was something that God himself was going to keep, that the promise to the people of Israel and the promise that God makes to the church as well are irrevocable promises because God himself is the one who guarantees them and will keep them. Let me apply this to the idea of assurance of salvation. In the church tradition that College Park Church has been birthed out of, it would not have been uncommon to hear this sort of language. Once saved, always saved. How many of you have ever heard that, said that? How many of you, that's, that's a very familiar concept. Okay, good. What essentially that means is this, if you're not familiar with it, it means that once a person receives Christ, that they're not able to lose their salvation. That once a person genuinely puts their faith and trust in Christ, they can't sort of have it be undone. However, growing up, the way that I understood assurance of salvation was this, that my assurance of salvation was based upon the fact that I remember the moment when I received Christ. It, it, it's based upon the, a date in the front of my Bible, or the fact that I, I really believed, and, and I remember that I really believed. And so we talk about assurance of salvation, oftentimes people talk about it as though it involves genuineness on my part, remembering the moment, or somehow there was a, a, an actual date in which I crossed the line and became a follower of Jesus. And none of those things are inherently wrong. But I wanna suggest to you that assurance of salvation may include those, but there's something far more significant underneath assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is essentially the belief that God was the one who created my regeneration. He birthed me again, and if God was the one who did it, then nobody, Satan or me, can undo that. That's assurance of salvation. It means that God was the one who saved me, that he conquered my heart, and that I am no more able to undo his work than I can redo my physical birth. And that's why Jesus described conversion as being born again in John 3. It is what is done to you. Being born is what was done to you. So God is the means by which we are born again. And since it is his work, it is irrevocable. And that means that those who are genuinely born again by God can never, ever, ever be unborn as his children. Now why is that important? It's important at so many levels. Let me just give you one example. When you walk through the fire of suffering, 
You need this assurance like you've never needed it before. I've walked through some very difficult and dark seasons in my lifetime, and the scary part of suffering is you begin to wonder, can I really make it all the way through this? You've hurt like you've never hurt. You're feeling things you've never felt before. You're thinking thoughts that are a little scary, and you begin to wonder, can I make it through this? And there is a sense of self-confidence that is lost when you go through suffering. It's part of the beauty of it. And so what is your hope in the middle of suffering? And your hope is not, I, I can do this because suffering tells you you can't do this. Like, I, I don't know if you can make, make it all the way to the end. And for that matter, how do you know that you're not gonna deny Christ? How do you know that the pain will be so great or that the frustration will be at such a level? And your only hope in the middle of suffering is this, that I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he will keep it and finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is this belief that God is for me and not against me, that he's made promises over me. And at the end of the day, I belong to him and he he will keep me because at the end of the day, I can't keep myself, but God is able to keep me because it was his work and he will finish his work because at the end of the day, he was the one that did it and will continue to do it. So in the midst of suffering, you know what your hope is? Your hope is, God, complete the work. I rely on you. I trust in you. This relates also to the issue of a hardened heart. Last week we talked about the problem of a hard heart. If you're truly born again, I think that you can succumb to the deceitfulness of sin and I think that you can develop a temporarily hardened heart, but at the end of the day, for those who are truly God's children, God will bring discipline after discipline after discipline after discipline on you because he loves you and he cares for you and you will not be permanently hardened. God will make your life miserable until you turn and repent. And you ought to say, praise God that I get to be miserable because at the end of the day, it's a sign of his love and his mercy. That's what the book of Hebrews says. God chastens those he loves. A permanently hardened heart is someone who's never experienced the grace of Christ. Their heart merely keeps following its own passions, its own desires, its own dreams. It's a person who develops an ongoing mindset, a permanent mindset of from me, through me, and to me. And as a result, they don't listen to any voice but their own. The point of all of this is that there is no lasting change and there is no hope apart from the concept of through him. The irrevocableness of God's plan and love means that as long as we have breath in our lungs, there is hope. Look at verse 30, 31, 32. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. What's he doing there? He's reminding them that there was a time when they were disobedient and and. God brought them to grace. So now, verse 31, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What's he saying? He's saying that even the disobedience of you Gentiles didn't negate God's mercy to be able to grab a hold of you and bring you to faith in Christ. And it means even though all of Israel at this point in time is for the most part hardened under the deceitfulness of sin, that even they are not yet without hope. 
In other words, disobedience, even national disobedience, does not circumvent God's plan. Waywardness, rebellion, and a consistent pattern of rejecting God are no match for God's sovereign grace. That's extremely important if you have a family member who's characterized right now by a hardened heart. You see their actions, you see their blindness, you see the unfolding tragedy of their lives, and you might be tempted to think in your mind they've gone too far. But you need to know God is able to remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He's able to open their eyes and make them see. So if your husband or wife or father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter or friend or coworker or neighbor seems hardened, this text implores you to keep praying and keep pleading and keep asking and keep sharing because God is bigger than their disobedience. If he did it with fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and religious leaders and political operatives and persecutors and even a thief on the cross, he can do it with someone who you love. There is no sin so great or lifestyle so ingrained that God cannot conquer it. There is no evil that cannot be transformed and forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's the point of the passage. All things are from him, all things are through him, finally, all things are to him. This text ends with worship. Theology should lead to doxology. You can't just hear Romans 11, you have to, you have to feel Romans 11. Verses 33 to 36 have a number of things in it. They have two exclamations, three questions, and then a summary. First, the two exclamations. Verse 33 begins with the word, oh. When you read the Bible, don't read oh like oh. (laughs) You need to read it like oh. So if you're on the dinner table and you come to Romans 11.33 and you're leading family devotions, you gotta hit that O and hit it hard. Oh, scary kids, oh, the depth. Because there's emotion here, Paul is passionate. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We're not sure if he means, oh, the depth of three things, riches, knowledge, and wisdom, or if he means, oh, the depth of the riches of two things, wisdom and knowledge. Regardless, all of them are awesome. That's the point. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, that God's mercy and his grace are unbelievable. That there's a depth to the richness of the mind and heart of God that is mind-blowing. And then he says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. What does this mean? It means that God is beyond our ability to fully understand. His ways are unsearchable. Romans 9 showed us that. You understand this text? You put a hand over your mouth. You no longer accuse God of things. You you, you see the beauty of who and what he is, and you just allow tensions in the Bible to exist, that those are there in order to remind us that, well, like Exodus, like we talked about, that God likes us, but he is not like us. 
His ways are under, unsearchable. How inscrutable are his ways, or his judgments are unsearchable, rather. How inscrutable are his ways, which means we are not able to evaluate God's ways. I hope that one of the things that's happened to you in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is you have reordered your definition of fair. I hope I've changed that definition or given you another definition in your definitions. He then asks three questions, all of which have the same implied answer. Three rhetorical questions that we're gonna make non-rhetorical. The answer to all three questions is no one. So who's known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? No one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. In fact, those, those really need to be said by you. Who has known the mind of the Lord, church? Answer? Who has ever been his counselor? Answer? And who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Answer? It's good that we're to be reminded of that every once in a while, aren't we? God doesn't answer to me, doesn't answer to you. Doesn't need your stuff, doesn't need your worship, doesn't need your money. Does it need your obedience? He, he's, he is all satisfied in all that he is. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't lack any wisdom. The point of those verses is that God is completely other. His ways, his plans, his very being are absolutely, completely other. Now, God comes near in Christ. He is imminent and personal, and there's lots of language in the Bible that talks about God being a shepherd, being a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and all of those things are absolutely true, and yet there are also things in the Bible that help us to see that even in the midst of all of that intimacy and closeness and personalness, God is so big and different and beyond us that it absolutely blows our little puny human minds. People in suffering need to know this. They need to know that God's doing things that you're never gonna see. Job says this, behold, these are the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Part of the trauma of suffering, part of the trauma of Romans 9, is you get a glimpse of all that God is and your limits in understanding all of what he is. The hymn writer Frederick Lehman tried to capture this wide, expansive, and marveling image of the length and breadth and depth of God's love when he wrote, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God. God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. So 
So what's the aim of Romans 9 to 11? It's this. It is to give you a glimpse of the beauty of God's ways. It is to point you away from yourself, away from your sin, to set you free from the captivity of unbelief. The the aim of Romans 9 to 11 is to woo you to the truth of the gospel that is found in the person and work of Jesus so that a regenerated, God-captivated, spirit-infused heart is able to say through a yet-to-be-redeemed mouth, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And if your tongue can say that, and if your brain thinks that, and if your heart loves that, you need to know God did that. If you can say that, it's because God stormed the citadel of your sinful heart and took you captive and caused you to believe, and your faith in Christ now means that you can say with a loosed, believing tongue, to him belongs glory forever and ever, amen. And you need to know that didn't happen because you are somehow special or unique. It happened because God is merciful and kind. Romans 9 to 11 shows us that at the center of the center of the center of the universe is God and his glory and that the most beautiful reality of all realities is God. That some of the most important words in life really could be these three words, from, through, and to. And depending on what word you connect to those words makes all the difference in the world. From him, through him, and to him be glory as opposed to from me, through me, to me, to me be glory forever and ever. This is the mystery of God's righteousness that a sovereign God conquered your sinful heart such that you would be able to say, no Lord, from you and through you and to you are all things, to you be glory forever and ever, amen. I live for that, that's my treasure, that's my pleasure, that's my delight because you are most lovely of all things in the universe, and God was the one who created that affection. And that church is the point of Romans 9 to 11, that God has captured you, and you have beholden the beauty of a sovereign God. We're gonna end today by singing. Good theology leads to good doxology. Father, to you belongs all glory because you are the source, you are the means, and you are the end of all things. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we have forgiveness of our sins because from him has come redemption and through him has come atonement and to him belongs all glory, both now and forevermore. And so help us now to live as a people who are so entranced by that vision of your goodness and grace that we will shun sin, have loosed tongues to declare the beauty of the gospel, and live as aliens in the world, knowing that our king is Jesus. And so we say to you, Jesus, be all glory, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.